Now, specifically and historically, uh, electricity obviously is the lifeblood of our way of life. Electrification in the 20th century improved lives all across our country. Getting electricity was, was the key to improving life. And indeed, in the 21st century, with our more connected world than ever, perfect, uninterrupted, affordable, reliable power electricity is absolutely vital in the future, and the demand will continue uh, to increase in so many ways in the developing 21st century, not just here in the United States, but all around the world. And the great news, here's the great news. For the United States, we're blessed. We're blessed with the most abundant, plentiful energy resources of any country in the world. Football teams and fans all, all like to say we're number one. Well, the United States is number one in the world when it comes to energy resources. Russia's number two. The Saudi Arabians are, are number three. A decade ago, we'd all say, oh, the United States is the Saudi Arabia of the world of, uh, with coal, four times more than, than, than Saudi Arabia. With this great game changer, the United States is soon to be number one when it comes to natural gas production in the world. And the game changer, obviously, is the shale oil and shale gas revolution due to the advancements in, in technology involved in hydraulic fracking as well as horizontal and directional drilling. Now, note that this increase in oil and natural gas production from shale oil and shale gas has occurred on private lands with state, not federal, oversight. In many respects, this is a prime example of the innovative innovative free enterprise system and capitalism at work. Now, here's the good news. You've heard all of these aspirations ever since the OPEC oil embargo in the 1970s. We're going to be American. America is going to be energy independent. Well, the reality is, is, is very soon, within a decade, we can be strategically energy self-sufficient and independent. And maybe you could say North American energy independent with our friends from Canada and Mexico and, and their production as well. Uh, this energy renaissance has meant a manufacturing renaissance with American jobs, improving our competitiveness, our balance of trade, revenues to the government, as well as national security. In fact, the United States is seeing an increase in manufacturing that uses natural gas. Manufacturers need natural gas for, for chemicals and fertilizers and plastics and tires and products and, and metals and so forth because their big costs are, are natural gas feedstock. I remember when I was in the Senate talking to the, Mr. Laveris, who's the head of Dow Chemical. This was 2005. And he said they were going to be investing in Germany. And I said, Germany? What are you going to Germany for? Germany's got all these high labor costs and all the rest. They said, look, our highest cost is not labor. Our highest cost is feedstock. And Germany has a reliable supply of natural gas, which they're getting, they're getting from Russia. Uh, but, but that's why they went over there. Now, in recent years, in recent years, Dow Chemical, that same company, has announced in the last three or four years, $5.5 billion of investment here in the United States of America because they see we have a reliable, affordable supply of natural gas for their efforts. And that, that's a, and you can call up Dow Chemical. I saw Mr. Laveris back in January to confirm these figures and, and they're true. Now, we do have challenges. 
uh, and policies that can cause or could, could cause prices to rise, thereby hindering the great potential of America. Government policies, as we all well know, can either help or they can hurt uh, the free market and energy production. According to the National Association of Manufacturers and the way they look at international competition, every day American manufacturers wake up 20% uh, behind their Asian counterparts because they feel that the tax and regulatory costs in the United States are 20% higher than in Asia, not including labor, just tax and regulatory costs. The last thing the manufacturers, and everyone wants things made in the USA and don't want to see jobs going overseas and so forth, but the last thing manufacturers need are energy costs that are unnecessarily increased due to government policy. Now, there's a proposed carbon tax that's become somewhat in vogue by some of the same proponents who are for that cap-and-trade uh, energy tax scheme, which was generally discredited. And while the carbon tax has, I guess, the value that it is, is more honest and straightforward than the cap-and-trade scheme, uh, I think it'll fail to garner sufficient political support in Congress because, to date, people haven't pers been persuaded that it's a good idea to increase the fuel and electricity costs, particularly on, on lower and middle income families, nor do they think it's a good idea uh, to make American manufacturing less competitive. So uh, I don't, while it, there is some support for it, I don't see increasing energy costs on businesses and households being somehow a, a great idea when we want to be internationally competitive because our, our U.S. economy increasingly relies on natural gas for its energy needs as a, as a feedstock for commercial products. Natural gas is and will remain an important commodity in the manufacturing sector because it is, it's affordable, it's versatile, it's scalable, and it's also very efficient. You would think that you'd have state and federal government saying, hey, let's, let's, <laughs> let's get more uh, natural gas and allow these benefits to contribute to America's uh, economic recovery as well as accrue to the benefits of, of consumers. Now the NAM also, and this is some statistics for you, the NAM supported a study by PricewaterhouseCoopers recently that predicted by 2040 the shale gas boom could create 1.41 million new manufacturing jobs in the United States and generate an annual cost savings of manufacturers of over $34 billion due to lower energy and feedstock costs. They say, oh, that seems like a lot. Let me give you those figures. 1.41 million new jobs by 2040 and saving over $34 billion annually in lower energy and feedstock costs. And this is, I could give you the site for the folks writing it. Now, all of these natural gas Cost savings for manufacturers makes sense. Look at the consumer savings uh, from the lower gasoline prices we've been enjoying in, in recent years. It's saving $110 million a day, according to AAA. Uh, overall, AAA estimates that Americans have saved more than $115 billion on gasoline in 2015 compared to 2014, and, or more than $550 per licensed driver a year. And I'm going to fill up with fuel at the Flying J truck stop in Caroline County, which is much less than northern Virginia and D.C. later today. And uh, people do care about prices, and, and that saves money for folks. 
The American Chemistry Council reported about a year ago that the chemistry industry alone announced 246 new projects representing $153 billion in capital investment. Much of it is actually geared towards export markets. So you want to see things made in the U.S. and exported, you could be a great place for manufacturing. And the Chemistry uh, Council's uh, statistics show that this helps in exports. So these energy-related chemicals, by the way, are the, are the building blocks primarily for a wide range of uh, sectors from plastics, rubber, fertilizers, building and construction, coating, paint, uh, automotive, and electricity, and electronics. Now, there's three key policy issues impacting uh, natural gas production and use. One, liquefied uh, natural gas exports. Two, clean, the clean power plan and pipeline infrastructure. Well, let me go through those a little more detail. On liquefied natural gas, we should support the, the principles of free trade and open mar markets in the context of all exports, including liquefied natural gas, and recently this was done on, on oil. In fact, today in 1776 is when we, the United States uh, uh, opened all our ports to trade in 1776, just for a historic footnote. Now, people say there's always concern, and I've heard it from some, that, oh, my goodness, if we have exports, that's going to hurt our domestic market. Almost every credible economist who has studied this issue, including the Department of Energy itself, has concluded that LNG exports and strong domestic manufacturing can coexist. And in 2014 and 2015, the DOE examined export scenarios as high as 20 billion cubic feet per day of exports and found both times that LNG exports will result in net economic benefits. Equally and very reassuring is that the conclusion of these studies showed, both studies showed that domestic supply can easily meet increased global demand for U.S. natural gas as opposed to displacing, from, displacing demand from U.S. energy consumers. The concern on, on LNG now that it's been approved is how long it takes, the permitting process and the backlog, which still exists for LNG uh, terminals. But the decision time, from my, what I can see, has actually improved in recent years. In, in late February, the first shipment of liquefied natural gas went out of Chenier's uh, port, uh, first one out of the lower 48 states from their Sabine Pass terminal in, in Louisiana. And so that's the first of several planned export projects that can, can lead to the United States being an, uh, becoming a net exporter of natural gas. Another amazing change in just 10 years. 10 years ago, some of these folks are saying, we're running out of natural gas, and there's big investments on importing natural gas into the United States. None of those, what they did with those facilities, they switched them around and said, all right, we're going to do this for exporting. We're not going to bring any, any in. So I think that I think export, the export market uh, can be beneficial to, to obviously producers and to the United States, and it can be helpful to, to some of our allies around the world who would like some competition as opposed to being, uh, let's say, beholden just to one source of, of, uh, of uh, natural gas or oil for that matter with it. So I think there's good promise there. Now, secondly, the Clean Power Plan is the EPA's first set uh, first ever greenhouse gas limitations on existing fossil fuel generating power plants. This poses both challenges 
and opportunities for natural gas. Without or absent new regulations, natural gas was gaining market share for power generation, and it's, it's a valuable part of our all of the above and below ground energy strategy that keeps manufacturing competitive. Whenever they say all of above, all above I'll say, yeah, and below ground too, because usually that means all they're for is what comes from above ground, and if it's from below ground, they seem to be opposed to it. Uh, the key, the, the uh, power, clean power plan de does depend on some new natural gas power to come online to meet emissions targets. But it does steer away from natural gas as well as nuclear, hydropower, and other fossil fuels, particularly coal, with the goal of sharply increasing renewable energy generation in place of all others. Now, I think this was wrong because it distorts the free market and it threatens our manufacturers' competitiveness. The clean power plan could wind up limiting the amount of power providers could use natural gas to, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, ironically, uh, there was a story in, in, about this big solar uh, panel, this solar production place in the Mojave Desert of California. It's having all sorts of, of problems with it. But these, these intermittent sources of, of electricity, wind or solar, when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, what they use as their backup is natural gas. You can't crank up uh, a, a nuclear plant or a coal plant, but you can like that with, with a natural gas facility. So natural gas is a backup for, for them. Now, as a nation, we have been able to reduce greenhouse gas while growing the economy, and that's largely due to the shale revolution that it has unlocked all these vast supplies of natural gas in our country, as well as efficiency. And there's new efficiencies, and we're all for common sense, practical conservation. We hate waste, and, and that's helped as well. And clean coal te technology has removed the particulate matter and the sulfur dioxide that causes acid rain and the nitrogen dioxide that causes smog. Greenhouse gases are different than that, but there have been uh, improvements. But the, the, this administration has issued a slew of regulations and intended to stifle our ability to access this crucial, valuable natural gas resource. Uh, there's a strong push by, by activists and increasingly within the administration to, to, call, to, to keep it in the ground is the, the latest phrase. You, have, you saw a recent example of it where they just knocked out the, the Atlantic off, uh, Outer Continental Shelf uh, ability for, from Virginia down to Keystone XL pipeline. But it's, it's a worrisome prospect that, that uh, if natural gas, which is responsible for about 30% of the energy used to power our economy, if they end up turning on natural gas the way they have on coal, this is going to harm our country in a variety of ways and, and really in a foolish, undesirable way as far as our, our prosperity, security, and, and opportunities for Americans. Now, the third key policy issue is pipeline infrastructure. The rapid increase in domestic natural gas production uh, continues to reshape our economy, as all of y'all know. It's, it's redefining our competitive advantage for our country within the global economy, especially in that manufacturing sector I was talking about. Our economy has really enjoyed some reductions in, in, in inflation and unemployment as a result of the technologies that have unlocked shale oil and, and shale gas. 
because manufacturers rely on natural gas as a feedstock and they also use electricity as well, it ends up being a, a big bonus uh, in reducing the cost of, of businesses and making them more competitive. Uh, now the new pipeline issue is really important because it's key to connecting where it's being produced to where the demand is. It's, it's as simple as, as that. Uh, it's an economic development tool. Having natural, some, some businesses would need rail, rail sidings. Some would want to have a port. Some cared about airports. Having natural gas or natural gas uh, to tap into for their manufacturing is a key thing in, in economic development. I know that as governor. So expansions of pipeline capacity are needed uh, to enable the construction of new na natural gas power plants as, as well. The Marcellus Shale is, is a godsend to the eastern third of the United States, that we have it here near us rather than having to get it all from, nothing wrong with Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana or Alaska or Wyoming and all the rest of the states, but it is nice to have some that is relatively near the third of the population, third of the, co the country. In Virginia, uh, they're trying to get a natural gas pipeline from the Marcellus Shale from really near, near out of West Virginia through Virginia to, to link in with the Marcellus in Pennsylvania and the Utica in uh, eastern, eastern Ohio. Uh, and it's become, and I suspect these gas pipelines may have opposition in other states as well from these well-funded anti-fossil fuel groups. And so we're seeing this opposition to this Atlantic Coast pipeline in Virginia. Uh, now, these, these pipelines for Virginia will be beneficial for people in their homes for manufacturing as well as for uh, power generation in, in Virginia for electricity. Uh, it is ironic that the, some of these very same anti-fossil fuel people uh, oppose this relatively inobtrusive underground pipeline that would be at most 200 miles in Virginia. Meanwhile, some of these same folks support a 705-mile above-ground wind power transmission line from Oklahoma and Texas to the Mid-South and the Southeastern states. So you'd like to see some consistency in that, but <laughs> that's politics. You don't see consistency too much. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd add on, on pipelines, by the way, the construction of pipelines mean more than just reliability and energy security. It generates uh, increases in economic activity with inputs like steel pipes, coatings, construction equipment, compressors, uh, motors, gauges, instruments, pumps, sand and gravel, engineering and design services. And then when these workers spend that money, that in a broader sense helps the economy as well. So generally speaking, in conclusion, American energy resources, natural gas, coal, and oil mean four great things for our country. Number one, it means more American jobs with a more competitive business production costs, uh, lower electricity prices, and of course all the jobs related to mining and production and equipment and rail in our ports. Secondly, we get a better quality of life with lower electricity and fuel and food costs. Lower gasoline prices on average is you know, over $1,000 being saved per household. Uh, compressed natural gas is another alternative for fleets of, of vehicles. And I guess you'll get into it. I'll not get it, but that, that is a, another alternative. People talk about battery-powered vehicles. That's another alternative for ground transportation. Heck, I look at those as natural gas and coal-fired vehicles. Electricity's got to come from some source. It doesn't come, come uh, fall off a tree. 
So all of those are, are, are the benefits in improving our quality of life. Third, everyone's talking about revenues. State, local, and the federal government with energy production trillions of dollars in revenues without raising taxes. And that makes a great deal of sense. And then the other thing is it helps our balance of trade. And that's something that comes up a lot. And so if it's coming domestically, that helps. And if we're exporting some, that helps our balance of trade. And fourthly, Americans and our economy are much less vulnerable to hostile and unstable regimes around the world uh, with it. So uh, you're going to have a, panels of outstanding experts that are going to expand on these important subjects in greater detail. And, and this is really a constructive and important Hudson Institute conference. And I hope people listen to it, because I think all of you all here and, and others really ought to envision a much better future with many of the innovations that can and will improve our way of life and, and indeed improve the way of life of, of people all around the world. Because the reality is, America's blessed. We have, we have the energy resources under our land and under our water. We have the great blessing of the creativity of the free enterprise system of the American people. The only thing that is really missing is the political will to unleash those, those great resources. And so I'm just going to finish this with a, a, a football third down, third and goal. You want to punt? Heck no. We're going to go for it. So all of y'all, when you leave here, Use this information, try to persuade and educate and inform people of the benefits of American energy, particularly on natural gas. And I think most Americans, regardless of party, regardless of where they live, say, yeah, I'd like more affordable fuel. I'd like more affordable, reliable electricity. I'd like to see more things made here in the United States of America. And I'd like to see us much more secure. So thank you to the Hudson Institute for allowing me to be with the team at the opening meeting. Thank you. Now, in all fairness, because time is tight and our situation is tight, I should forego my privilege of asking the first question, but I'm not going to do that because I can't resist <laughs> the temptation to ask you in particular, and I don't mean to use this as an opening to criticism of past or current uh, administrations, your, very quickly, your view of the state of energy and energy future for your own home state, namely for Virginia. Well, in Virginia, it's in southwest Virginia, which is the coal country, and they do get some coal bed methane, and there is a little bit of natural gas there. Uh, these policies are devastating. These communities are just truly devastated by, by these policies. It's one thing to lose, for coal to lose, let's say, in compet competition with natural gas, but if you set rules up and regulations that there's no way that coal can win, or in effect outlawing it, it is, it is heartbreaking uh, to see what, what happens to these communities. These counties, they still have schools, they still have services, but they, they get uh, two-thirds of their revenues from, from coal. And, and so you hope to get export markets, and Virginia has the largest coal port in Norfolk and, and also in Newport News in, in, the, uh, in the country, and so maybe you can export some of it, but it's devastating there. Uh, the shutting off of Virginia from getting oil and gas off our coast. I've long, and Chuck Cunningham and Doug Dominich, I see them back there, they've known I've been saying this for over a decade, let Virginia do it and share the royalties with the states like we do on lease sale 181. This is off Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, and they get 37.5% of the royalties. I said, let's use that revenue for roads and transportation in Virginia. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia could do whatever they want. 
you know, with, with those royalties. And now the government, the Obama administration has shut off the East Coast. Now that's going to need a change of administration to open it up. Uh, prices are so low, I don't think there'd be a lot of exploration quickly, but we ought to find out what's there. See what trapped reserves there are of natural gas and, and oil, and then at least know what's there. Don't stay uh, oblivious of it. And there are some great technologies uh, that can, in a very benign way, uh, identify trapped oil and gas reserves. So that's, that's harmful. The only thing that has helped us in this natural gas boom, because coal was so much, the states that use coal or hydroelectric in the, in the Pacific Northwest, those were the ones who had the, the lowest electricity prices. The only reason we haven't felt the pain at the switch is because of natural gas. Uh, if natural gas were you know, $10, $12 like it was years ago, we'd be feeling a lot of pain at the switch. But because natural gas is so plentiful, in fact, so low, so low price, people are shutting down rigs or putting them down. But the point is, that's, that's, that's been the, the savior as far as electricity prices. Uh, in Virginia. And so our ports, uh, our railroads also have been affected by Norfolk Southern's headquarters in Virginia and CSX has big presence in Virginia and about a quarter of their uh, service or revenues came from coal and so that's down. Some of them picked up a little on, on the sand, the propens that are needed in, in shale, but that's still not the revenues they got from hauling coal. Yeah. You have time for a couple sure. questions from the audience? I'll go here and then here. Yeah, you, you, you go first. Yeah, I, I'm going to have a microphone. If you could just identify yourself and disclose as much of your affiliation as you care to do, and we should be good to go. I'm Ken Barry with the Foster Report. Governor Allen, um, picking up on your so, comments. Uh, Foster Report? Foster Report, yes. Got Thank it. you. Um, picking up on your comments on the Obama administration uh, ruling off limits the uh, Virginia North Carolina uh, oil and gas coastal development, the stories that ran in the paper here. Uh, attributed that to objections from the military in the Tidewater area and the tourism industry. Uh, do you feel that's a, a smokescreen or legit? Uh, there are uh, coastal communities, uh, localities that are, are worried about it, and I think their views ought to be taken into account as with that of the military operations in Oceana and Virginia, which is a, uh, the, the largest jet base for our Navy on the eastern seaboard. And all of that can be taken into consideration. Anybody who's for this wants to learn from the disaster, uh, the BP disaster, make sure we have the best methods, best uh, uh, technology and equipment and, and safeguards in it. And so I think that you can take that into account. Nonetheless, the governors of these states and the legislatures representing these states were still in support of it. In Virginia, uh, Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, was strongly in favor of it. And so, there's, so there, was bi there is bipartisan support. And I think you should look at the states, but in the sta and the states can take into consideration, let's say that the folks in some coastal community, and we've, our family is just in the Outer Banks. I think Ocracoke's the best beach on the whole eastern seaboard, because there's very few people there. I like places where they're like that. Uh, but it, it, and, and, and you wouldn't want to see it. Any harm, and then you have the fishing industry as well. Uh, these platforms, to the extent you have platforms, are actually good reefs. There's good fishing around them. Uh, as far as the military is concerned, gosh, I, here's my view that the military is concerned. Virginia's uh, ports are 
second to third best, uh, biggest port, uh, ports on the eastern seaboard, New York, New Jersey, Savannah, and then the Virginia ports. And they got these gigantic container ships coming in there. They're going to be even bigger with the widening of the Panama Canal. And, and so if they're, if they're flying around out there doing their, their, their exercises, you know, they have to worry about container ships out there as well. So I, it seems to me a platform or two uh, is something that is stable. It's not even moving. It seems to me they ought to be able to get around those fine or easily. I, I wonder where their objection, there's this offshore wind idea, uh, which is very, very expensive electricity. And so that's going to be offshore as well. And all right, if they're going to have offshore wind, is that not going to bother the, the Navy pilots as well? I, my, 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 my solution to this whole thing, a nice compromise, is allow the oil or gas platforms out there, put a wind turbine on it, put some solar panels on it, and everyone can be happy uh, with it. That's, that's my compromise with it. But I think the, the Navy uh, can, can handle it. I, I uh, don't think that's something that's un, un, uh, unachievable to, to uh, surmount. And again, the local communities, uh, their views are, are ones that be taken into account, but I think the governors and the legislatures of the states are still supportive of it. And in the event that the states were getting 37.5% of the royalties to use for roads or beach replenishment or parks or whatever they want to do, I think you'd have a lot more support for it as well, as well as the jobs that would be created therefrom. Dan Cohn from MIT. Governor, do you see the uh, low price of oil as having any significant impact on the prospects for uh, natural gas? Say that again. The low gasoline prices? The low price of oil. Yeah. Is having any significant adverse effect on the prospects from natural gas? That is, I see. oil I th might be used more in manufacturing. No, I think that natural, ga natural gas was a preferable uh, feedstock for, for all those chemicals, fertilizers, everything. Uh, and so that, that and tires and metals and so forth. So natural gas was, was, is the best uh, for it in a variety of ways rather than using oil. Um, the, the places, there's a few places, I think Puerto Rico was and Hawaii was still using oil for natural gas, which, or for uh, electricity, which is just really, really uh, foolish. And there's people who use still use heating oil and furnaces in their homes. Uh, any, anybody who's had a, has natural gas, once had oil, will much rather have, prefer natural gas to, to oil. The only place that I see low oil prices having an effect on natural gas is in compressed natural gas. When gasoline or diesel and, and gasoline prices were over $3 a gallon, getting compressed natural gas which was, um, I don't know, say a dollar seventy, a dollar eight. What, what, Charlie? What would you say that? I don't know what the comparable is, but it was much less. It was like a dollar seventy. You had a capital investment with it, but that that saved money and it made sense for fleets. Um, I have a friend who's got a beer distributorship in, in Tucson, Arizona, and he converted. This is when prices were high converted his entire fleet to, to CNG, compressed natural gas, and then opened up his place for, for, for uh, regular folks who don't, don't, uh, are not part of his distributorship. 
And he's, he felt that it, it paid off. His investment was paid off in two years. So he's going to stick to it. And I think that fleets, even with these low prices, where, where they have to come back to a central garage, so to speak, say a UPS, a, a FedEx, school buses, city buses, uh, CNG, I think, still makes e economic sense with it. But the low gasoline prices make that less, less likely. Uh, same with the battery technology for, for vehicles. Uh, the battery technology for vehicles, I think, has the advantage over CNG is that every place that there's a lot that's owned has electricity distributed to it. CNG still has, doesn't have uh, distribution, uh, the gasoline and diesel, diesel do. So on transportation is probably out in effect there, but certainly not on electricity generation and certainly not in manufacturing. It's been a tremendous benefit to, to both keeping our electricity prices low and making manufacturing much more internationally competitive. We're going to squeeze in one last sure. question. And here it's here on the front. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. My name is Mitsuo Nakai, a member of the Reagan Foundation in California. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm on the Reagan Ranch Board of Governors as well. He was the one who inspired me. Since Rams is going back to L.A. Yeah, the Rams are going back to L.A. When you and, said that uh, introduction, I said, yo, there's a, you don't have to call them St. Louis. a lot of people remember you. Uh, my question is, uh, do you have a plan to run for the U.S. Senate from California? <laughs> from California? <laughs> yeah. If California were only Bakersfield and Bishop and Lone Pine and Independence, which it's not. Uh, no, I, I like Virginia. I, we, we like going out to Santa Barbara to the Reagan Ranch and, uh, and uh, educating young people. I work with the Young America's Foundation, and it's good talking to young people and letting them know about their future. And part of their future is having more competitive tax policies in our country rather than worse in the world. And I bring up Ronald Reagan and the 1986 tax reform. That would turbocharge our economy as well. And, and I'll, I'll always bring up energy. It is a blessing. I know some folks in Washington look at these energy resources as a curse. They're a blessing. And it makes our country more secure, more prosperous, and, uh, and more competitive as well. And so I bring up those Reagan principles. And so thank you. But no, I'm not going to be running for office in California. Actually, I enjoy freedom, and I don't reckon I'll be running anywhere <laughs> other than helping out good folks like Barbara Comstock and, and others. Uh, I was for Marco Rubio. Uh, I now look at the, the competition. I said this on Fox Business. Now that's left the Marcos out, because I liked his positive approach. Was I look at this like a Giants-Eagles playoff game. Uh, so I'll, ultimately, I'll ultimately be for him, because they'll be playing the New England Patriots. And I'd like Eli Manning, because I liked his father, Archie, to beat the Patriots. But other than that, is that the final question? Thanks for that great question. And uh, thank all of y'all for allowing me to be with you. Thank you for, for not making me do push-ups for being late. Uh, but most importantly, remember, go for it. These are positive, constructive ideas that really ought to unify Americans and also freedom-loving people all around the world. So I, th I thank all of y'all with the, with the Hudson Institute uh, for, for everything, uh, for, for your leadership through the years. That con book, I can, that guy's like Nostradamus or something like that. Well, I mean, all of this has come through in the last 10 years. So thank you. Thank you, Ken. And, and thank you, Mr. Allen, for Senator Allen, again, better late than never. <laughs> and again, thank you. And thank you for your kind words about Hudson. Glad to do it. Thank you all.